0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson.
1: And I'm David Schultz, filling in for Greg Store. And we have a bit of an ad hoc episode today. We're going to be digesting the Supreme Court's uh, report on the Dobbs leak. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, I don't know how you don't know. <laughs> but uh, there was a leak of a draft opinion uh, last year. It was, of course, the uh, Dobbs case that uh, overturned Roe v. Wade, and the Supreme Court issued a report uh, talking about its investigation into who did it, uh, and the answer is we don't know. Uh, Kimberly, you know, it sounds like the big headline is that, that that we we don't know who did this. Will we ever know? Is are we just gonna? Is this gonna be a mystery that we'll never find the answer to?
0: Well. It does seem like the court was unable to figure out, at least conclusively, who was responsible for the leak. But note, of course, that we're dealing with attorneys. Uh, So the language here is very precise. All right. So the report says the team has, to date, been unable to identify a person responsible by a preponderance of the evidence. So it doesn't say they don't know. could be that they have a good idea, but they don't want to say without, you know, this 51% surety, right?
1: Maybe the folks who investigated this have an idea of who it is, but we, the public, probably will – well, we certainly don't know now. We may never know.
0: Well, I want to get my own little lawyerly spin on it. Yes, that does seem like um, that may be the case. Maybe they know um, and they're not telling us. But there is some language in the Marshall's report that talks about an individual sort of being able to leak with, quote, impunity. And so that suggests to me that actually maybe they don't know who it is. Um, So let's step back a minute. So the court asked uh, Michael Chertoff to, quote, assess the Marshall's investigation. Notably, he did not do his own investigation. So who is this guy? He is the former Secretary of Homeland Security under George W. Bush. He is a former Third Circuit judge. He's an assistant attorney general, US attorney for New Jersey, and now runs his own security management company. So, okay, somebody who's really qualified, uh, looked at this report, and came to the conclusion that there weren't any additional useful investigative measures that had not already been undertaken. So that sounds like um, we're not going to see any follow up from the court. The marshal's report did say that there's some evidence that they still haven't looked up and they're going to be following up on. Um, but look, unless there's this big revelation that hasn't come up in this months long investigation, I think this is really going to be it, at least for the near future. But. Uh, One note here is that members of Congress on both sides of the aisle have expressed frustration with the leak investigation, both before and after this report um, was released. And, you know, look, we have the House of Representatives in the hands of Republicans, the Senate in the hands of uh, Democrats. And so if they want to look into this, too, you know, seems like that's definitely a possibility from either house. So maybe not the end of it, though. Sure does seem like it. The end of it from the court's perspective
1: but let's talk about why the marshal was unable to to reach a conclusion here uh, and it sounds like one of the big reasons is because the document security protocols at the court were um to to use a, a legal term <laughs> no bueno uh they were pretty bad um can you get into that a little bit about what we learned uh from this report about how the the court handles its papers
0: Right. So this was one of the biggest surprises to me. Um, And so I want to talk a little bit about some of those deficiencies and then get into some of the reasons why that might be the case at the Supreme Court. So first, the report concluded that it was unlikely that the leak occurred as a result of an outside hack. So look, good news there,
1: right? That's yeah. And that's a, a good that's an important thing that they needed to rule out.
0: Right. Um, instead, it seems like this is an inside job. And the statement from the Marshall's report um, that stuck out to me in particular was uh, this impunity statement that I mentioned before. So I'm going to read from the report right now. It says, if this was a court employee or someone who had access to an employee's home, that person was able to act with impunity because of inadequate security with respect to the movement of hard copy documents from the court to home the absence of mechanisms to track print jobs on the court printers and copiers and other gaps in security or policy. So look, they're really firmly placing this on the deficiencies of the court.
1: Well, it's, and one thing that you know caught my eye when I read it and caught my ear just now when you just said it is access to their home. So this could be a spouse of a court employee. This could be a house guest. This could be a contractor This could be anyone who went into someone, uh, you know, the justice's home or a clerk's home. Like, that's a a huge range of people.
0: Well, that's a huge range number of people. And if you multiply that out um, just by the number of authorized people who had access to the hard copies. Now, look, we learned from the investigation that in addition to the justices, 82 employees. So employees, you know, permanent employees and clerks, they all had access to these documents, either electronic or hard or hard copies right of course that's not just the justices and the clerks there's also people who have to sort of edit it edit the opinion and get it ready for publication but still and then when you talk about you know your point that then they take it home and there's all these other people running through their you know through their homes the the possibility just really seem endless um so but in addition to just the you know, the access to the hard documents. The court's inability to track what's been printed on their printers was also one thing that sort of blew my mind. Um, so there's this section in, uh, in in the thing that details, right, the draft opinion. I, I guess I should back up and say one thing that was not- notable about the draft opinion that Politico published was that there were these staples in the corner, which unless there's some sort of, you know, attempt at, you know, purposeful misdirection, this sort of suggests that this is a hard copy, right? So the court looked at all the printers in the building, which turns out there's a lot, uh, but they were actually unable to confirm very few number of printouts. And there were a couple reasons why, but the one, again, to me that really stuck out was the fact that a lot of these printers weren't actually hooked up to the court's internal network Uh, And so they just weren't able to track them, or at least not able to track them as thoroughly as they would be able to. And they said that they they found forty or they printed documents um, from forty six internal printers that were not hooked up to these these networks. Which, I mean, again, just seems like this unimaginable number.
1: And we should say that I mean this is something that other federal agencies have uh, you know a problem that other federal agencies have solved a long time ago. Law firms uh have figured out a long time ago i mean is this just a, a sign of scotus being sort of behind the times and, and kind of a, a dinosaur
0: well i guess the the thing that i would say to that is okay, yes but the one thing too i think that is behind this is not just sort of their lack of security protocols but really what the institution is about so the report itself says that the person who may have violated these procedures violated a system that was quote built fundamentally on trust with limited safeguards to regulate and constrain access to very sensitive information. And so that's something I think is really hard for people outside of the judiciary, me included to understand. And so I chatted with former clerks both before and after this report came out. And the thing I kept hearing over and over is just how shocking it is that a person would even try this regardless of whether or not they could get away with it. And so it's, It's really unclear what this leak means going forward, and it seems like something that, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. If there aren't any more similar leaks, I think maybe we can just chalk this up to the enormous stakes that were at issue in Dobbs, right? I mean, this was about abortion, an issue that has really kind of been at the heart of a lot of culture wars for the last 50 or more years, right? But if we do see leaks, even smaller leaks, I heard from and from insiders that this is really going to signal a fundamental shift um, at the Supreme Court.
1: That's a really good point. But you also had a really interesting quote in your story that you wrote yesterday, uh, where, you know, you you had a, a former clerk talk to you and say, you know, this is not the first opinion that the Supreme Court has written where there'd be a temptation to leak. I mean, she mentioned, you know, Bush v. Gore. That's another one where there's, you know, a lot of anticipation there, um, you know, and this has still never happened. So that's that's one thing that seems concerning and unsettling, that, that idea that, you know, there have been a lot of hot button opinions before and they've never leaked.
0: That's right. I mean, yeah, abortion is sort of different. You're right. There's Bush before Gore. I think also, too, you know, there are Cases all the time that sort of move markets. Uh, we see once they come out. So if you can get access to that, you can you can make some money. Um, so yeah, I think it is significant that this has not happened before. Uh, that's sort of as as this person I talked to for my story yesterday suggested. Maybe that does suggest that there has been this shift. And look, there's a lot going on at the court. You know, there's there's a new six to three conservative majority that seems you know, more comfortable to take these huge changes in law and that could be affecting things, sort of how people even within the building perceive the work of the justices. And, you know, there's also this politicization um, among nominations and confirmations that could have that same sort of effect. And so I think this is something that we're going to have to see if this is something that really just fundamentally changes how the justices operate.
1: And then finally, I wanted to ask you about how things are changing and, you know, if the Supreme Court is changing some of its procedures as a result of this. And if so, is that one of the reasons maybe why we haven't seen any opinions yet this term (laughs) at this very, very late date?
0: Right. So the Marshall's report does say that they are curr- there's currently an investigation underway about how the court can comp- can improve and that some of them have already been implemented. And this is where that Chertoff statement really um, comes into play. It lays out four measures that he suggested, and these are things pretty obvious, right, like limiting the hard copies and using tools that can better track how sensitive information is used and edited pretty Obvious things, But, you know, the court says it's purposely keeping the details of those private so that, you know, people can't undermine them. But again, you know, as you and I have been talking about, the court really needs to disseminate information to clerks and staff to do its work. And so trust here is still going to be key. And, you know, whether the court can regain that, as we've been talking about, is a big question mark you know, to your point about whether or not that's sort of the reason that we're seeing no opinions. I mean, look, we're almost four months into a nine-month term. We don't have a single opinion from the court. You know, we talked to Adam Feldman on an earlier episode about how this is really historic. And he said it does seem like maybe one possibility for this is that the justices are really keeping those drafts close to their vest. And I mean, that makes sense if you think about the kinds of cases that the justices heard this fall, right, David? Like affirmative action, voting rights, things on the environment. These are the things that you really, really don't want to leak, just like um, abortion. And so in their report, or along with this report, the justices issued a statement that really talks about the importance of privacy. And so, again, I'm just going to read a little bit. They talk about A lot of their deliberations being public, you know, briefing and argument, but they say, quote, along the way, it's essential that we deliberate with one another candidly and in confidence. that phase of the judicial process affords us an opportunity to hone initial thoughts, reconsider views, persuade one another, and work collaboratively to strengthen our collective judgment. And so, you know, I think it's probably right that the tightening of these security protocols and this sort of lack of trust that has resulted um, could be factoring in on this historically low output from the court this term.
1: All right. Well, uh, if we do hear any more details on uh, who done it, um, it sounds like we probably won't. But if we do, you'll hear about it uh, first on news.bloomberglaw.com and. Check back in with the podcast uh, for the latest details on not just this, but also all the cases that the court is hearing. Uh, And until then, thanks for listening.
0: Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On the Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On the Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.